You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. We're in Genesis chapter 32. If you want to read along, we have uh, 31 verses to read, so get comfortable. Genesis 32, and Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp, so he called the name of the place Mahaniam, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant, Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. That he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking calves and their, uh, camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are present, sent by my Lord. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. 
So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what? Is your name? And he replied, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word that's alive, God. and, um, And God, we just confess we need you. Lord, I need you. Tonight, Lord, that um, if anything is going to change inside of us, Lord, it's got to be a work of your Holy Spirit. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, into this place, God. And uh, we surrender now, uh, this night, this time, this study together, Lord. I pray you anoint my lips, God, and that you would speak to your people, those that you have gathered here tonight for a purpose, God, that, that you have something to say to them. I pray it would not be lost let our hearts be prepared, Lord, even now, God, that we would have a, a ripe spirit, Lord, to be given over to you. And we thank you, God. We glorify you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of my favorite ad campaigns that's been going, I guess it's been going a couple years now, is uh, the Dos Equis guy. Are you guys familiar with him? The most interesting man in the world. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, you know, he's this dashingly good-looking older man, and uh, every commercial's uh, like just a testimony of his exploits all over uh, the world, and uh, they have these great little lines about what makes him the most, most interesting man. Stuff like, uh, when in Rome, they do as he does, or uh, mosquitoes refuse to bite him. Purely out of respect. At museums, he's allowed to touch the art. And my favorite, uh, his mother has a tattoo that reads, son. <laughs> so dumb and so great. Uh, well, as interesting as the most interesting man might be, I think Jacob might have him beat for having lived the most interesting life in human history. The story of Jacob is a wild story. 
Uh, remember, this guy dresses in goat skins to steal his brother's blessing. He runs into the desert and sleeps on a rock. And, and while he's there, he sees angels coming up and down from heaven. He gets so inebriated at his own wedding, he takes the wrong woman. I mean, I love Jacob. He makes me feel so much better about my life. And I want to recap uh, chapters 30 and 31 because we kind of jump over those to get to our story tonight. So really quick, um, in chapters 30 and 31, Jacob finally marries his beloved Rachel. Remember, Laban, his uncle, did the wife swap, and he had to work another seven years for Rachel. But he did. And then he starts this new life under his uncle Laban. But it turns out in God's irony that uh, Laban is as much a trickster as Jacob ever was. Not only does he pull this wife swap on Jacob, but, uh, but then Laban has Jacob go into the fields and work with the livestock. If you remember Jacob when we first met him, uh, working in the fields is not really his thing. Uh, he liked to be in the tent cooking with his mom. He was, uh, he was not about being in the fields under the hot sun. And it says uh, in chapter 31, verse 6, that, that Laban changes Jacob's wages ten times. Ten different times he changes his wages while he's working for him. But God blesses Jacob in the midst of this difficult situation. Uh, while working for Laban, Jacob has 11 children of his own, uh, and he becomes quite the shepherd. In a bargain with Laban, they decide to split the flocks uh, up, and of course, uh, Jacob can't help himself. He puts together a little scheme where he gets all of the strong and healthy flock for himself, and uh, by the end of it, Jacob's a, a fairly wealthy man. Laban and Jacob are like the Old Testament version of Tom and Jerry. You guys remember that cartoon where Tom the cat and Jerry the mouse are like scheming and tricking and trapping each other for like a ham sandwich? Uh, This thing went on for, I don't know why we watched this for like years and years and years, but all they do is just trick and scheme and try to get the sandwich like every episode. But we keep watching and they throw a bulldog in every once in a while. That is pretty much the relationship between Laban and Jacob. And Jacob comes, he comes under some serious... uh, Tough reality checks as he's working for Laban. See, Laban doesn't work. And Laban doesn't even supervise. Laban doesn't, he's not part of the day-to-day operations of anything. Does this sound like a boss that you've had in the past or the present? But Laban is no idiot. Laban sees how God has blessed Jacob and he works Jacob hard. So what does Jacob decide to do? The same thing Jacob always does. When things get tough or he gets scared, he runs. Jacob doesn't trust Laban anymore, so he, seeks, uh, he sneaks out in the middle of the night. He's three days' journey away from Laban, and he, he takes everything he has, and he sneaks away. He runs, just like he did with Esau when he was afraid of Esau's wrath. He ran away. But Laban catches up to him, and he confronts him. And the two make a covenant with each other, and they set up a pillar. And this pillar is effectively a boundary between Laban's land and the land that Jacob is crossing into. It's a border. And this is where we pick up our story in chapter 32. And there are three points that that I want to hit on. I want us to wrestle through, if you will. One, we want to look at Jacob's desperation. 
the place of desperation that Jacob comes to. And then we want to look at Jacob's struggle in the physical, in the spiritual. And finally, we want to recognize God's deliverance for Jacob. So in chapter 32, we see Jacob coming back to his homeland. And it says that angels of God meet him. And he seems not to be phased by this. This is a routine thing for Jacob now. As they move in uh, to this land, it says that the, the angels are there. And remember, this should remind us that when Jacob was leaving this land, a few chapters ago, chapter 28, when he was leaving, he experienced that portal with the angels coming up and down. Now he's coming back into the promised land, and he experiences these angels again. And what the author is telling us is that this is more than a physical journey for Jacob. There's something spiritually dynamic that's taking place. Angels are attending to Jacob, and he's on the alert. Something is about to go down. And right about this time, Jacob gets word from his messengers that Esau's on his way. He's heard Jacob's back in town, and he brought 400 friends with him. These were probably not the welcoming committee. They didn't have the welcome home Jacob sign uh, as he was coming back into town. This was an army. See, the, the scripture tells us that Esau had dominated this region to the point where this country was now called Edom, which was Esau's other name, meaning red. He utterly owned everything in this area and now he was coming for Jacob so you can begin to see Jacob's predicament behind him is a border he can't cross back into Laban's land and ahead of him is Esau with his 400 men and for the first time in Jacob's life he has nowhere to run he's stuck so what does he do Two revealing things happen at this point in Jacob's life. The first is Jacob cries out to God in a prayer. And you just look at Jacob now. All of his scheming, all of his planning has gotten him nowhere. Now sure, he has amassed a lot of wealth. And his family has flourished. But neither of those things are going to save Jacob. He cannot put his trust and security in either of those things. He's utterly afraid. He's alone. He's scared. The schemer is out of schemes, and he begins to bear his soul before God. If you were here last week, you remember Pastor Tim was talking about uh, that great story of Alexander the Great and that crazy burial ceremony that he had set up where uh, all of his jewels are poured out behind his casket as it's being taken to the cemetery, that doctors are carrying the casket, and, and then he wanted to be uh, laid to rest uh, with his hand out, one hand out, uh, dying, em showing he was dying empty-handed. Of course, representing everything that he owned, all of his jewels, treasure, was going to go to someone else. Uh, doctors could never save him. In the end, and he would die the same way he was born, with nothing in his hands. 
And this is where Jacob's at. He's realizing nothing else is going to save him. And I believe this is one of the points that God is trying to drive home to us tonight. That if we have put our trust and faith and hope in other things outside of God, you can rest assured those things are incapable of saving us. Incapable of saving us. They weren't made to do that. And in Jacob's prayer, as he cries out to God, we see for the first time a transformation that's happening in the heart of Jacob. All of his trials, from lying and tricking his father, stealing and running from his brother, sleeping on a rock in the desert, being tricked by Laban with Leah, spending years in the fields working as a shepherd, all of this is finally beginning to crack the wall around Jacob's heart. And he begins to surrender to the Lord. Let's read again the prayer that he prays in verses 9 through 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mother with the children. But you said, God, you said, I will surely Do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And and I think there's some important points we need to pull out of this prayer of Jacob. In this prayer, Jacob humbles himself completely before the Lord. He confesses that this whole thing, his whole life, it's much bigger. God is much bigger than just what's happening to Jacob. It started with Abraham, it passed to Isaac, and now Jacob was living out this story of what God was writing. He he, he confesses that God has been leading his steps the entire way. Oh Lord, you said to me to return to my country and to my kindred. And Jacob gives God credit for all of his prosperity. When I started, I had nothing. And look what you've done. I have two camps now. And finally, Jacob receives God's grace by just confessing, I am not worthy, God, of the least of the deeds of steadfast love, all the faithfulness that you have shown your your servant. I am not worthy of this. In James chapter 4, this was similar thing was spoken to the New Testament church. This is something we need to grasp onto. James 4, 7 through 10, it says, Submit yourselves then to God. Humble yourself. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Listen, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your glory to gloom. And listen what he says. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what will he do? He will lift you up. 
And this is exactly what's happening in Jacob's heart. First he submits, he he draws near to the Lord and confesses his weakness and his need for God. And there's grieving and wailing. God, I'm afraid of Esau. God, deliver me. And then finally, humbly confessing his faith in the Lord. I believe what you said, Lord. I believe what you said to me. You were faithful to do what you promised to do. And the second thing we see in this portion of scripture happening with Jacob is once he finishes his prayer, he does what only Jacob does best. He, he puts together a strategy here. He, he sends presents to his brother Esau, hoping to appease his wrath. He sends goats and ewes and rams and camels and cows and bulls and donkeys and, yeah, all kinds of animals. And in total, Jacob sends more than 500 animals to Esau. This was an enormous gift, a huge amount of wealth at this time. But really, it was more than a gift. Several commentators believe that what Jacob is doing here is trying to give back the birthright to Esau. He is sending ahead everything that he had stolen from Esau. He's trying to make things right. Listen, in verse 17 and 18, how he instructs his servants, Jacob, how he instructs his servants. He says, uh, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present to my Lord, Esau. This is a new Jacob. Jacob is finally, it's more than just Jacob sending the gifts ahead. This is a uh, representation of what's happening in Jacob's heart. He is finally trusting that God is capable of coming through on that promised blessing from his birth. And because he trusts the Lord with this, he can release in the physical everything back to Esau. And even... He can even honor his brother by calling him my Lord, the authoritative, and referring to himself as your servant. Humility is finally taken over Jacob's heart, and he's in the best place he's ever been. And that is where the struggle really begins. Isn't that a crazy contrast. He's in the best place he's ever been, and that is where the struggle takes place. Let me share with you uh, an instance in my life where I feel like this, a similar situation played out. Um, as most of you know, I came on staff with the church in, in March, end of March this year. And for, for me and my family, this represented a lifetime of struggling with God uh, about ministry and how to do ministry and being in ministry. To be honest, uh, this uh, had been spoken over me. It had been prophesied and affirmed by people from the time I was 12 years old that one day I would preach the gospel and I'd be a pastor. And I was like, no, thank you. Not interested. Not my life. I see pastors, and they seem really unhappy, and their families are messed up, and I got no interest in that. 
So I went a different path with my life, and I got a degree in something totally different and uh, just charged ahead, forged ahead on this road that I really felt like was going to bring a lot of blessing. And to be honest, God blessed our family a lot. I have three beautiful daughters, and God blessed everywhere I ever worked. And, and what I did, it was, it was great. It just wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. So two years ago, we moved uh, up here to the Bay Area, thinking that I was taking this great job at, at a school in the South Bay. I work in education, and um, it was perfect, and God gave me favor there, and um, we were happy there, and, and things were great. And then we started coming to reality. Dang it. And quickly, God just was showing us what he was doing in the city, and and, and we were falling in love with this place and falling in love with you guys, and and you guys were becoming our family here. And and this thing just started pulling at the wall of my heart and saying, do you remember? Do you remember those promises? you remember all those things that were said so long ago? So we began to pray, and, and Dave... Uh, and Tarek, and we were praying together and talking together and, uh, and really intentionally, I'm t- like fasting and just laying this before the Lord because so much of me uh, never wanted this to happen in my life. I was afraid. I know who I am. I know my faults and uh, I know I'm broken and I don't deserve, I'm not worthy of a call like this. And yet God... He makes those things right. He justifies those he calls. And so uh, Dave called me. He said, we want you to come on staff. It's time. Let's go. And we had been praying for a year and wrestling through this and finally came to a place where, honestly, we had surrendered this and said, okay, God, whatever you want to do, we, we are here. Use us. God, we, we let go and do what you're going to do. And honestly, here's the thing I thought. When I came on staff that first week, I thought, thank God that struggle is over. And little did I know, (laughs) the last two months have been some of the hardest months of work, um, of battling in the spiritual realm. Um, We are trying to move our family of five from South Bay into the city. Who does that? No one. I'll tell you who. Nobody. Uh, you can't find a place to live. You can't find a place to park. You can't find a place to eat. Uh, the city is not built for a family with three kids. And yet, I will tell you this, as, as tough as this struggle has been in the last few months, uh, I'm excited to give you the testimony when this all comes together and happens, that God is going to have, he's got a house for us here. I know he does. We're going to find it soon. Um, and our kids are going to find the right school and all of these things. I'm excited because I know when God gave us this call that he goes before us. He's making a way. And so we pick up Jacob right in this place where he has surrendered everything. And he's got to be feeling like, finally, God, I'm doing this right. I've given everything back, sent the stuff to Esau. I've cut loose of all that. Um, I'm in the right place. Thank you, God. And so now Jacob is sitting alone waiting for 
the morning to come. We have to face Esau. He sent uh, his family into two camps, which if you think about it, is pretty messed up. Uh, because he's thinking one of them is going to get taken out. So uh, <laughs> think about, uh, I'll send you over there and you over there. One of you is not going to make it. Sorry. Uh, okay, I thought that was funny. Well, <laughs> And so he's waiting now for Esau to show up in this confrontation, and he's sitting utterly alone in the middle of the night. And this is when something astonishing happens. Jacob, sitting by himself, is attacked by someone. And the attacker and Jacob, they're wrestling each other. This fight goes on for hours and hours on end. Neither can overcome his opponent. So finally, the attacker touches Jacob's hip and pulls it out of socket, and Jacob is now physically crippled. But for the first time, Jacob gets it right. He will not let go. He is physically crippled, in pain. He's been fighting all night, and yet he is grasping, he is clinging to this person. And the attacker says, "Um, Listen, this is fun and all, but the sun's coming up. I got to go. And Jacob, for the first time, he, he won't let go. He is hanging on. He is doing this the right way. Remember that he has tried to swindle for a blessing. He has tried to cheat for a blessing. He's tried to scheme for a blessing. But finally, he is holding on and begging for his blessing. In desperation, he is crying out for this blessing. He says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And then the attacker says something that must have stopped Jacob cold. He asks him a question. What is your name? What is your name? Who are you? And I imagine Jacob freezes inside. Don't ask me that question. Don't ask me that question. Remember, Jacob earned that name from the time coming out of the womb, clutching onto Esau's heel. His name, Jacob, literally means heel grabber. This has been his identity that he's carried his entire life. And that question, who are you? Jacob would have understood the significance instantly of that question. When was the last time someone asked Jacob, who are you? Jacob immediately would go back, flash back dozens of years, standing in that tent with dead animal skins on him and his brother's stinking clothes, faking his voice before his father. And he would hear Isaac's feeble, dying voice saying, who are you? Are you my son? Who are you? Remember, Jacob lied to his father when asked who he was to steal his brother's blessing. And do you remember the way Esau replied? When when Esau heard about this, what he said to his father, Isaac says, your brother came deceitfully and has taken your blessing, Esau. And Esau replies to Isaac, Is he not rightly named Jacob? 
He's the heel grabber, Dad. Of course he did. That's who Jacob is. All of Jacob's lies, all of his schemes, the years of running from this encounter with his family, it's right where the attacker pulls Jacob back to. And you can almost hear Jacob's breaking heart when he replies back, Who am I? I'm Jacob. I'm Jacob the liar. I'm Jacob the cheater. I'm Jacob the schemer. That's who I am. My name says it all. And then I, I can imagine this, this attacker, the, the person who's come and wrestled with Jacob, reaches down and he lifts Jacob's head, just face covered in tears. And he says, not anymore. That's not who you are anymore. No. Now your name will be Israel. Israel, one who strives with God. And God strives. And now the identity of the attacker is revealed. Jacob has been wrestling with God himself. And really, all of his life, Jacob has been wrestling with God. Fighting for a blessing. Fighting for an identity. Fighting for his own way. And at the same time, God has been fighting on Jacob's behalf everywhere he's ever gone. Clearing the way for him. Warring on his behalf. Jacob is the embodiment, the manifestation of this name, Israel. And it says, Jacob, name that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I love the message translation of that same verse, verse 30. It says, Jacob named that place Peniel, God's face, because he said, I saw God face to face and live to tell the story. And this is where God's deliverance comes in to the picture. This encounter between Jacob and God is a beautiful picture of God's grace for us. The picture of a striving, scheming Jacob being literally wrestled to the ground by God shows us, again, the great lengths that God will go in pursuit of capturing our hearts. This is also a beautiful picture in Jacob's story of the path that each of us has to walk in our walk with the Lord. Jacob moves from self-sufficiency to dependency on God. Begging for a blessing. I want, I want you to remember that picture. I want you to visualize that picture of the crippled Jacob on the ground, just clinging, grasping, hanging on for dear life. Because that's a picture of us. The only question is what are you clinging on to? Each of us is clinging to something or someone. Maybe it's your spouse, a girlfriend or a boyfriend. And you're just grasping for this relationship that it will bring you some kind of validation in your life. 
Maybe it's your sexuality. You're, you're striving, you're grasping for this identity. It's become all of who you are. Hoping that it will give you some value as a person. Maybe it's self-righteousness. Maybe for you, just clinging to your list of uh, the rights and wrongs that you think elevates you above the people around you. Maybe that's what you're holding on to. What does Jesus say about this? In Luke 13, verses 23 and 24, someone asked Jesus a question. And Jesus being Jesus gives a better answer. Someone asked Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now listen to what he says. He answered them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And there's that word again, strive. The striving that Jacob did is really the only striving that matters. You will wrestle with many things in your life, but in the end, the only striving, wrestling, the the fighting that matters is in your relationship with God. Jesus is telling us that we need to wrestle with God and let him wrestle with you in every area of your life, your sexuality, your finances, your position, your identity. They have to be surrendered. They have to be surrendered. And the irony in all of this, of course, is that Jesus did the striving for us. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the pure, sinless, spotless Jesus. And what is he doing? He is wrestling. He is fighting. He is striving to the point of sweating blood. He knows the cost before him. He understands the weight he must carry, and none of it is his own. He goes to the cross to end once and for all this battle. For us to enter the kingdom of God, we must come to a place, the same place that Jacob came to, and say, God, I'm not worthy. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love. God, I'm not worthy of all the faithfulness that you have shown me. But because of the cross, because of Christ, I inherit every bit of the blessing. And it's okay to wail before the Lord, to cry out when you are afraid. Deliver me, God. It's okay to do that. And we have to remember the promises that God said, I will surely do you good. And cling to the promises. See, when God redeemed Jacob on that day, this transformation of Jacob from Jacob to Israel and gave him a new name, he was just setting the stage for Jesus. God had promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. And through him, all of us, all of us would be blessed. 
And when Christ went to the cross, he finished that promise. He completed it. Jesus is the blessing. Listen to me. Jesus is the blessing that Jacob was striving for. And now that blessing is offered to you and to me. We are no longer the deceiver. We are no longer the broken. We are given an identity change. Because of Christ, we have a new name. Child of God. I want to leave you with this, this quote and then just quickly share with you the, the, the two things I think God is really speaking to our church tonight. This quote is from David Ford in his book, The Shape of Living. It says, perhaps the hardest truth of any for us to grasp is this. Do we wake up every morning amazed that we are loved by God? The hardest thing for us to grasp, to cling to, to hold on to every day is this amazement that we are loved by God. And here's what I think God is saying to us tonight. First, will you release that stranglehold that you have had on other things in your life? Are you willing to let go and reach instead for Christ? It has to be. Remember, God didn't wrestle Jacob to submission. He didn't force Jacob into anything. He asks, will you release these things, the grip you have on these things in your life, and instead reach for Christ? And secondly, this is what I believe God is saying. He's, he's saying to us that he will give us a new name. That identity that you have carried, the scars that you bear from your life, the lies that have been told to you for years, maybe generations in your life, he will remove all of that from you and give you a new name, a new promise, a new identity. If, if you will just surrender to him. Let's pray. Father God, you are, uh, God, you are so good. God, I thank you that we can come boldly into the throne room of the Heavenly Father because of Christ. And petition you, Lord, we need you. God, we need freedom. There are things that we are chained to. There are things that we have been holding on to, God, that are like an anchor around our neck. And they're drowning us, God. And we need freedom. And God, we come to this place tonight saying we cannot free ourselves. We are not built to free ourselves, God. We need you. So God, I pray this time tonight, God, of worship, this would be a freedom celebration, God. It would be, Lord, a time of surrender of our lives to you. God, will you meet us in this place? 
we are unworthy, Lord, of even the least of the blessings, even the least of the steadfast love that you have shown us. Yet we declare you are greater. And we trust you and we love you. And we call on your name. Your people tonight, God, we call on your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.